All right, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by Couchbase. Couchbase is an open source, NoSQL document and key value store database. It requires no external cache, supports SQL and analytic queries for JSON data, and Couchbase supports technologies like Kubernetes, Java, .NET, JavaScript, Go, and Python. Download it today at couchbase.com backslash stack overflow and let them know we sent you. So this week on the podcast, we have a very special guest, our new chief product officer, Teresa Dietrich. So Teresa, I was at lunch with you the other day and you're telling us a great story. You worked at AOL and I was at that time a heavy AIM user. Same. Same. And I loved AIM and I was talking about how the three dots are still kind of around. So you were there at the creation of the three dots. That is so wild. I want to hear about that and the chaos that the three dots created. The launch of the three dots (laughs) and the subsequent pulling back down of the three dots. Yes. Yeah. So I was in technology operations Uh, at the time. I, I think I was either a network engineer or a network architect. And random weekday at the office, right? And we were always doing things like when we launched, you know, the first online streaming Big Brother. And I I swear the routers were actually like smoking in the data center, right? (laughs) Because we were all like, who's going to sit on their dial up and watch video of people sitting around a house? Turns out a lot of people. (laughs) Um, But this, you know, was like random middle of the weekday. And all of a sudden we started getting these alerts of router crashes throughout our data center throughout multiple data centers. And, you know, we all, ju- we all jump on and we're looking at it and, um, you know, trying to look at the logs and see what the router was doing and looking at bandwidth graphs. And the bandwidth hadn't gone up at all, right? Hmm. If you looked at the bandwidth, there was no discernible from before they started crashing to when they started crashing. And so we're, you know, we're trying to look at like the data we look at less often. We're calling into our data center techs, getting sniffers plugged into some of the routers where there's crashes going on and trying to figure out what is going on. And I mean, it was literally like every like 30 seconds, another router was falling over. So we'd get it back up and it worked for a while. And we're, and we're like, are there, are there gremlins in the data center? Like what's going on here? And so we finally got the sniffers plugged up. And we're starting to sniff traffic. And we started seeing these 60-byte packets being sent from the AIM servers. And we realized that uh, those of us who were also AIM users, because that was actually our internal chat ops back in the day, as you can imagine, right? Mm -hmm. There was no Slack. Some of us said, you know, it's funny. They launched that your buddy is typing today. I noticed that happening for those of us who had updated our clients. And what we realized is they were sending an awful lot of packets (laughs) for the your buddy is typing, your buddy is stop typing, your buddy is that your buddy is mm. typing and they were the minimum byte packets. And what was happening was we hit a limit on a router that like none of us collectively had ever hit before, which is the packets per second of wow. a line card. Mm. We never hit that before. It was always bandwidth. It was always like, you know, this, this card has a one gig backplane or a 10 gig backplane. And, and that was it. It was actually packets per second. So it was one of those things when you're, ta- you're talking to Cisco or Juniper, like you knew, but like you never worried about. We weren't tracking that. We weren't graphing that metric because, you know, you never, you, ne- you never track and collect and graph a metric until you realize you needed it. It would have helped you <laughs> troubleshoot something. Um, and so we literally had to call over to the, the AIM development team and be like, shut it down <laughs> and let's work together and figure out how we can implement this feature without sending like an insane number of 60 byte packets and, right. and taking down swaths of the network. And so it. it was constantly querying to see if they were typing or not typing and that's what the packets yeah. were? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
How yes, did you fix no, it? Yes, no. Did you end up um, like just t- like giving it? It was sort of change state, yeah, right? right. I, I changed my state, therefore I'm updating you, right? But people hadn't done that before. And so I, I, what I had said at lunch was I think it's funny is when, you know, like I'm on my iPhone or, or something and I see, you know, the dot, 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 but someone's typing. Sometimes I have a little PTSD of like thinking <laughs> back to, to sort of the, you know, the launch we had that set that up and everything. But I mean, I stayed at AOL for almost 10 years wow. and, you know, just the scale of problems that we saw was just, you know, amazing to me. I, you know, I actually was helping keep CNN.com, AIM and all of that up on September 11th, 12th and 13th. Mm. I was literally like two years out of college and our senior engineer on the team was out at the Outer Banks and there was no connectivity in the Outer Banks back in those days. And, you know, I was help keeping that up. And I think just the perspective and the sort of like the way I think about problems, both in how I architect, but also troubleshoot that was had a real firm foundation that, you know, I had no idea what, what I was a part of at the time when we were doing it. But looking back, I'm, I'm so thankful for the experiences and the opportunities and sort of the, the comrades who went along on the journey <laughs> with me, right? I will say too, network operations is great because there's very few jobs where you can walk in a room and say, shut it down. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of a dream, like to just be able to go in and just be like, it's over. It's done. Shut it down. And you got to do it. Yeah. That's great. Well, the answer was like, shut it down or all your servers are going to lose access to the network. So you got both the carrot and the stick. Wouldn't you Mm -hmm. like to roll back the code you you, you just deployed so I don't have to shut down access? But, you know, I would say the flip side to that on being starting my career in network operations was it was always a network problem until I could prove it wasn't. Mm hmm. Right. I think database folks and uh, network folks sort of uh, who start there sort of have that same sort of having to be on, on the defensive. It's your fault until you prove it's not. You're, you're guilty until proven innocent. Because well, the mm. software works beautifully. Of it works fine on their machine. It worked fine, it worked fine in dev. Right? And, and the reality <laughs> is when you do add that network is when it all goes. South. That's right. Right. If we could all just, you know, have m- magical tubes mm-hmm. and not actually have to have uh, any real connectivity, life would be so much simpler. Just local we copies of the that. web. That's it the answer. Turns out to be much hey, we're more working expensive on than you think. Overflow <laughs> offline, internet offline. It's yeah. coming That's right. on That's an, right. to an SD card near you. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll ship CDs of uh, all the stack content <laughs> to you yeah. like we did at AOL. It'll, sure. it'll be awesome. Microsoft <laughs> yeah. and Carter comes bundled with that. Um, <laughs> ben, you know what I've been doing recently? What you been doing, Paul? Trying to do all kinds of querying of data, big data sets, just messing around. Yeah, that stuff can get complicated pretty quickly. Yeah, it really can, especially with recursive SQL queries using CTEs. But you know what? You know what I should be trying? Couchbase. Oh, yeah, I heard of that. What is that? Well, Couchbase is an open source, no SQL document, and key value store database. Hmm. It requires no external cache supports SQL and analytical queries for JSON data, and supports technologies like Kubernetes, Java, .NET, JavaScript, Go, and Python. Wow. That is actually, that's a lot of technologies to support. So if I wanted to check it out, where could I, where could I find this? You could head to couchbase.com slash stackoverflow. Oh, very cool. Actually, today's episode is brought to you by Couchbase. This whole thing was an ad? <laughs> <laughs> So wait, can we, what is a, what does a chief product officer do? Oh, that's a good Because I think a lot of our listeners have probably never met a chief product officer. I would say, you know, I, I like to think that at a product-based company, product is sort of the hub at the center of the wheel. Like to me, if you're, if you're a product technology, you know, based technology company, we're the hub at the center of it. When you see companies where things, where all those other groups feel siloed, it's often because the product function isn't, isn't acting as the hub 
we all mm. those folks plug into. So part of your job isn't just to like make sure things ship, right? But right. to actually to make like marketing, sales, and engineering hang out together. And I think, think of it as sort of two ways, right? I think that when it comes to, I actually don't focus on shipping. Mm-hmm. I actually focus on impact. And I think that impact is sort of where product management, engineering, and design come together. I think of product management being focused on value. I think of engineering being focused on quality. And I think of design being focused on usability. Mm -hmm. And if you think of that as a Venn diagram, impact is where those three things happen. Because I could ship, I could create a roadmap that doesn't have a lot of impact, has, you know, is not very ambitious. And I could go tick, tick, tick. Look, as an organization, we shipped. We did it. Yes. <laughs> and we provided no impact. Mm-hmm. So I'm very impact-based, right? I always start with a problem. What is the problem we're trying to solve? And then what are the KPIs that we'll know at the end of the day? Because I think that's another problem that product folks get into, which is they're so focused on the next thing they're doing. It's You go back and go, did we actually provide value? Right. We what actually it, provide impact. Yeah, right? yeah. So you want to have those key metrics. Yeah, and what and is to keep a good KPI that. though? Like, what's a good KPI? I, well, I think it's something that you can have a, you know, it, you can make sure that it's not sort of a coincidental mm-hmm. KPI. Um, you know, it's funny. One of my one of my treesisms, and anyone who works with me for a while will get to hear, is that <laughs> which we measure, we incentivize behavior towards. Mm-hmm. And having worked in technology for over 20 years, I know that technologists can hack just about anything. So I feel like KPIs are so important. And you have to really make sure that, like, this is a real measure of what we're trying to impact, right? That that there aren't ways to move this metric and not actually have the impact that you're looking for. So I actually spend, a, like, I actually spend more time on defining what the problem is that we're trying to solve and defining the KPIs than anything else, because then you can be more iterative and you can be more innovative in trying different things to actually move the needle. But back to your question. So I I think, you know, when it comes to sort of product design and engineering, sort of the product development organization, right, I look at that as having sort of like direct impact. And then when I think about the sort of client success, sales, marketing, I think of it as being a a thought partner and an influencer, Mm -hmm. right? Enabling them to be successful in what they're doing, making sure they have the knowledge that we're aligned, that we're listening to to feedback from them, and and to really have this sort of product feedback framework that helps us take in, you know, exploratory sentiment attitude, right? As well as actual user behavior in both a qualitative and quantitative way. And a lot of those parts of the organization, like marketing sales and client success, and in our case, community, are actually how we get all of that feedback to make sure that we're providing value and impact to our users and our customers. Got it. But I think what attracted me to Stack Overflow is like, I have been in technology and engineering, you know, my entire life, right? I wrote my first code as a teenager, right? I was at Carnegie Mellon, right? Where some of the geekiest of the geeks hang out, right? And then I feel like, you know, the second half of my career so far has been really about advocating for technologists, building environments internally in a company, advocating externally about what do engineers care about? What do they need? What what challenges them? And what motivates them, and how do how do we do that? 
And so to sort of, uh, it's a real challenge. And I always say challenge and opportunity are two sides of a sword. So I, I'm excited about both of how do I do that for a, like a much broader set of technologists. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what, what does motivate technologists? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we can't figure it Solving out. Solving a problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. So scratching that, just like getting in yeah. there. Yeah. I think, you know, I always say like, you know, my engineering background, even though that, you know, most of the technologies I learned before aren't particularly relevant these days, right? Well, what were your languages? I mean, I started in C, right? Oh, okay. That's relevant. It still mm. runs the entire internet. Mm. Yeah. Relevant yeah. at this company. It's not relevant. Maybe it's not relevant <laughs> in my career anymore. Fair. Fair okay? enough. Yeah, I know chief yeah. product I'm not officer. Writing, I'm not writing operating system level code like I did in college, right? I'm not programming chips like we were doing. That at, would be a bold move as a product officer, Billy. We need our own OS. This <laughs> is an right. organization. Right. I'm going to solder the chips for the servers. Yeah. It'll be swell. Nights and weekends. That's what she works on. This org used to have its own languages. So, I mean, you could just take it down the stack. There you yeah. go. Yeah. That's right. Right down the OSI model. That's right. right? We're moving yeah. to risk fee. Okay. okay. So, um, <laughs> so, what? So, problem so I think, yeah, but, but I say like what I think the fundamental for me is taking a complex problem and breaking it down into pieces and figuring out how to solve each of those pieces and then build it back and then build it back together mm-hmm. and going to execute it. Right. And so I think it's how I approach product. Right. I never like a solution looking for a problem. Mm-hmm. Like I want a problem and I don't want to jump quickly to the solution. Like I said, we talked about the you know, the product vision or the product themes. What is the problem we're solving? And what are the KPIs that are going to tell us whether we've solved it, right? Mm-hmm. Or how much we've solved it, how much we move the needle on that, that problem or need. And I think for engineers, it's the same way. It's that impact, right? They want to they solve a problem that's worth solving and is going to have impact to people, you know? And I think that technology makes people's life better in one of two ways. It either is sort of the like better, faster, stronger, right? So reduce manual error, take something that took me two hours and it takes five minutes or it's completely automated or it's the innovation side. Let Mm -hmm. me do things I literally couldn't do before because of limitations of, you know, where we sit, right? Having remote workers wasn't an option 20 years ago when I got started in the industry, right? And so I always look at it as those two things. And I think for engineers, you want to balance those two things where they're they're creating net new capabilities. Mm-hmm. But engineers also really ap- appreciate that iteration, right? That sort of continuous improvement to move that along. So I think that's some of the things that really drive engineers. Any technologies that particularly like excite you or gather your interest? I come back to the, I don't like solutions looking for problems. So I always get like, I always get worried when something becomes a buzzword mm-hmm. and then like mm-hmm. starts to jump the shark. We were talking right? about microservices yeah. before you came in. Microservices is long since jumped the shark, right? <laughs> you know, but, but talking about software architecture, I feel like every few years we have this brand new, you know, architecture and it's going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. And, and I, you know, I see these Twitter debates and I'm in rooms with, with technologists who are uh, the newest fan gal or, or guy for this. And, and I say this fairly regularly. You cannot remove complexity from a system. And I think having been in C-level, CTO, head of engineering, head of product roles, I see this at a different level than a lot of folks do. It's people, process, and technology. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what happens when a new software architecture comes along, I said, where did you move the complexity? 
Mm. Right. So I think like in the monolith, you know, the monolith is a great place to start uh, in software development because it ha- because um, you have a smaller number of people working on it. Right. Coordination is not that high. But what you find is when you get to a certain size of organization or rate of change, what you've created is organizational complexity. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, so that's why I wouldn't say I'm skeptical, but I would say I'm pragmatic about Mm -hmm. new technologies. And I, you know, I always want to look at what are problems we're trying to solve that either we we don't solve well or we actually can't solve at all today and then evaluate those against the new technologies that come out and sort of say, would these be a step function better than the technologies we're using to solve this problem? Or has this been this lingering problem in our backlog that every time we try and do it, it gets too complicated or it doesn't move the needle enough for us to invest in using it? And then you can move that forward, right? But it's just like, you know, I I think machine learning and what's going on in AI is awesome, right? Actually, the reason I chose Carnegie Mellon all those all those many years ago, was I love robotics. Mm-hmm. I didn't end up going into robotics. The field was still so early. I like to solve problems at scale, but I still love the capabilities of that. And when like robot butlers come out, like I will be <laughs> first in line. I will There's whatever. Been a lot of whatever Kickstarter attempts. like is it? Yeah, yeah. Let me know. I'm I'm putting the money down. I want for robot it. friends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here for that. I want a robot butler. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want. I, I, and I would trying. prefer a British accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you sort of talked about. The way you think about complexity is I sound sort of like a physicist, you know, you can't take like mass or energy out of the universe. You know, there's some kind of inertia. You can't remove it, even though you've decided that the new system is better. Complexity is a constant. Complexity is a constant. I love it. I may use that now. Okay. So new teresism. Um, (laughs) But I've been telling this to Paul and Sarah because it's like, I'm trying to learn how to code. And it seems like every six months, somebody's like, all the old languages are trash. This is the new hotness. Don't even bother with that. Everybody's learning this. You'll be left out if you don't learn this. And so it's very hard to be like, well, I'm still just like figuring out what I should learn mm-hmm. when things change. So, so when there's so many new fads, right, all the time and so much sort of assuredness about rust is better because it's going to clean it and it's going to make it simpler and there's going to be less problems. Mm. You know? Really? So much Engineers being I- ideologists? <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Religious you- zealots? Shocked. <laughs> how do you redirect that person? So how do you d- redirect that person coming in on a Tuesday being like, all right, we got to move to Kubernetes. I learned, I read five tutorials this weekend. This is so important. Everything is trash. We're going to do it. Well, how do you I've been redirect there. that excitement? I've been there. I had one architect that that worked for me and he would always come in, right? He Everything should be at R&D and POC and he would always come in with sort of the new hotness, right? And a lot of architects, they have really strong opinions. I always talk about myself and I say I have strong opinions, but loosely held, right? Mm. Like I'll be enthusiastic. I'll have a high energy about it. But if you present me with data, like... I can quite easily change my mind. Having been in this industry for this long, I feel like if I don't change my mind pretty quickly and easily, like I would be left behind. But when you have folks uh, like that, Sarah, you know, with my architect, I always came back to, you know, the problem solving. I know I may start to sound repetitive here, but I always say like, what problem are we solving? And if they bring up a problem that like we've never talked about, I would say, I would say if we've never talked about it, how big of a problem is that for us? And why does it jump the line with all the other problems that we're trying to solve right now? Or if it's a problem we've already solved, I would say, you know, how much more is it going to solve it, you know, solve it better? How's it going to move the needle on that? And if there is a real step function, then I think you come back to the set of priorities and say, is moving that step, the, the level of step function that that technology will move our problem solving in this area where does it fit against all the other priorities that are sort of in our roadmap or in our backlog 
to go after. And then I think the other thing I will say about like the, you know, the new, I call it the new hotness or the shiny new toy is this comes back to the organizational complexity, right? The more languages, frameworks, technologies that you use, you have to maintain, mm-hmm. right? It's just like the whole sort of like, I can build this better mindset. Like, you know, we really should only build software of which it's sort of super foundational. It's our secret sauce to what we're doing. Nobody out there has solved it. And, you know, there's real major gaps of what we strategically need out of software of what's out there that we could either through open source or, you know, buying it that we could use, right? Because I think everyone forgets about that operational overhead cost of whether it's maintaining homegrown software that doesn't need to be homegrown or whether it's, you know, now we have three languages, now we have four languages, now we have five languages. And so, you know, my point would be, let's say we really decide this is this is a new language. We really think it will move the needle. We're making it a priority. I would also go back and be like, is there any language that we support today that we could deprecate? Mm. Right. Just I, I think it's important that it's a transparent decision and that everyone understands that, like, you know, the cost of supporting more technologies or, or languages and frameworks and everybody goes into it with, you know, open eyes. Cool. Teresa, it was awesome to have you on today. We're going to give a little shout out to the community that we do every week. We read all the lifeboat badges. So these are awarded to a user who gets an answer score of 20 or more on a question that had a score of three or less. So they have saved a question from sort of the dustbin from of obscurity. history. Here. Yes. So awarded to Chronofish two days ago, 404 not found, but route exists in Larval 5.4. Laravel. Laravel. <laughs> not little bugs. Mispronouncing software. Is I know. Kind of I know. You said Larval. I, I got a little bit like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this question was asked two years and nine months ago, wow. and it's still active. What a hero. Yeah. Uh, and the answer person says, I'm not unsure, entirely sure why all the downvotes, since this is a common issue. Mm. Thank you. Uh, that, what was, there, what was Chron- her handle? Chronofish. Thank you to Chronofish. Thank you, Chronofish. Chrono uh, well we have done. a celebrity in the house here, John Skeet. See how to check for Ooh. null. Can't we use is operator instead of equals equals operator? Yeah. yeah. How does that guy have the time? I don't know. He's got the rep, though. Counting days between two dates to Troy Ayne, awarded uh, January Artist 28th. Problem, computer science. Yep. And cast an object to long in Java, awarded January 22nd to Sa-Yin Wai-Yang. That's a classic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that for the lifeboats, you often get the, the low-hanging yeah. classics, right? Casting. Exactly. Casting is a big deal. Yeah. All right, very cool. So this week's episode was brought to you by Couchbase. Our guest was Teresa Dietrich. Thank you so much for coming on. So I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm Ben Popper on Twitter. I'm Sarah Chips. I run community here at Stack Overflow, and I can be found at sarahjchips at twitter.com. And I'm Teresa Dietrich, and uh, I can be found on most social media platforms as Teresa DG. I'm Paul Ford. I'm a friend of Stack. You can find me at Ftrain. Sounds good, everybody. Remember, complexity is a constant.